electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Ford. Carl has the morning off. Today, stocks try to rally, but the Nasdaq's still in the red. Headlines out of Europe continue to move stocks. We have a look at what sectors in tech may actually be recovering first. Plus, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Rivian and DocuSign both blaming the pandemic for poor performance while trying to convince investors the hardest days are behind them. And then fears of Chinese delistings continue to spook traders. The future for some huge stocks within the Chinese internet sector, John. Yeah, but Dee, we're going to start with the markets. The Nasdaq sure has been whipsawing this week. But was that the case for every little piece of tech? Dom Chu is looking under the surface at a few moves worth noting. Hey, Dom. Well, what's interesting is that when it comes to the NASDAQ composite and specifically the NASDAQ 100, there are a number of different types of technology companies that are in there and not just ones that are domiciled here. We'll get to more of that Chinese trade in just a moment. But take a look at the Invesco QQQ Trust, because what we have is a fractional loss on the day. But this right kind of you know, move that we've seen over the course of the last couple of months here, the reason why it's important here is because this general level that we're at right now represents just about where the NASDAQ NASDAQ 100 and maybe markets more in general were at the day before the first day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So as you talk about the kind of gyrations that we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks here on balance, we have seen a move back basically to where we were on that Wednesday close right before on the 23rd right before the the invasion on the first day of the 24th. So that's something to watch for the NASDAQ trade overall. With regard to the sectors on the move, if we focus specifically on technology and communication services, the ones that kind of make up a bulk of the NASDAQ trade overall, on a, on a basis of versus the overall market, they have been underperforming over the last week. The S&P overall is down about one and a third percent. Communication services down over one and a half percent and technology down two percent. And that tech trade is certainly a key focus. As for the parts that are catching a lot of uh, investors' eyes right now with regard to the near and maybe even longer-term trends that are at play, Chinese Internet, because many of the biggest Chinese Internet stocks are also part of that NASDAQ 100 index. JD.com, there was an earnings kind of growth concern there also playing part of that story. Pinduoduo and the CraneShares CSI China Internet EDF. This is just in the last week. JD is down 21%. Pinduoduo down about 21% as well. And this ETF that kind of tracks China's Internet and big tech down about 16%, again, just in one week. That's not working. What is working is solar energy, alternative energy, all of that given the recent focus on oil prices and their escalation. Enphase Energy is up 10% over the last week. Solar Edge up about 9%. And one of the big ETFs that tracks it, the Invesco Solar ETF ticker TAN, T-A-N, up about 9% as well. So there are certainly some themes that are developing here, but again, it's all amidst the macro backdrop of that conflict, that war that's happening in Ukraine with Russia. That's gonna drive a lot of the sentiment, at least in the near term, John. Dom, I'm glad you point out uh, something that is working. There's not a lot in terms of the tech sector, but something that 
isn't going as badly, I suppose you could say, is big tech. It continues to sort of mask some of the uglier moves under the surface that you're seeing from the high momentum names and the Chinese stocks, as you outlined. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, what's curious about that is there, there might be some kind of more fundamental reasons why that driving trade, right? I look specifically at some of the, 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 the trillion dollar club, right? If you look at Apple, you look at Alphabet, you look at Microsoft, you look at Amazon. Apple has been an underperformer over the course of the past week, so there hasn't been a massive bid for it, despite the fact that there was a catalyst in an event where they unveiled new products. Microsoft and Alphabet kind of underperforming as well, although Alphabet, I would point, is now fractionally higher on the week. Amazon is the real standout. So you have an Amazon and Apple kind of barbelling out the side of things and then a little bit more different type of performance from Microsoft and, and then from Alphabet. That's going to be the curious trade that plays out is whether or not there could be continued kind of a safe haven bid for some of these big tech stocks in times of turmoil. We've seen in years past, guys, that those big tech trades and specifically Apple have been a place people like to look towards when things get a little bit dicey with regard to the economic picture and certainly geopolitical concerns as well, guys. Yeah, Dom, it feels like we're at an interesting spot. I'm looking at some tech stocks that I track and who's up year to date. Not many names and even fewer when I X out who's in the process of getting acquired or taken out by private equity. I mean, I'm trying to find some kind of trend there in uh, who's surviving this better than others. Palo Alto Networks kind of doing okay year to date, just about flat, for example. Uh, but but it's an exception to the rule. No, no. I mean, and, and cybersecurity was going to be one of those kind of more fundamental drivers, right? Because there's been such an intense focus on there, given Ukraine, Russia, given the threat of a cyber war or cyber warfare that escalates. That That's one part of the story. I, I guess if you look at it, even before the, the Russia conflict really got going in terms of anticipation, when troops were amassing on the border, going all the way back to like the early mid part of February, there was already a concern that rising interest rates are going to have a, a, a huge valuation hit for some of these types of growth-oriented tech stocks. So that's in play as well. And given the fact that we have the, the you know, Federal Reserve meeting, possibly live, to go with a rate increase in the next week or so, that kind of puts a lot of that tech growth trade in focus yet again, right? Because this notion is, even if you get rid of some of these tensions with U- Ukraine and Russia, there is still the concern that rising rates will put a dampening effect on multiples and valuations for these tech stocks in the future. So whether they go 25, whether they go 50, how many they do this year, that's all going to be big, John. Yeah, and we'll be covering it every step of the way. Dom, thanks. Uh, speaking of big moves, let's get to DocuSign, another big post-earnings drop, taking out pandemic-led gains. You can see it there, down more than 20% today. We had CEO Dan Springer last quarter when the company missed on billings and lowered guidance, and he pointed to the need to generate new demand, gave a time frame to get growth back on track. We think this is an H1, H2 story. And so, you know, for H2, uh, we had lower billings in Q3, you know, and we guided to lower than our initial, uh, you know, goals we had previously for Q4. Uh, and that's the time frame we think we'll be able to sort of write uh, that activity uh, and be back to where we, uh, we were in the prior uh, years. Uh, DocuSign did beat on the top and bottom lines for the fourth quarter, but guidance for the full year coming in weaker than expected So is it just taking longer to get back on track? Well, MongoDB and CrowdStrike, examples of stocks that rose after posting results, but even those with double-digit gains earlier in the week still down on the year, as I was mentioning. Other pandemic winners like Asana now down 50% in 2022, D. 
John, it's just wild to see that chart of DocuSign. And we've seen it with so many other names. But that round trip that isn't even a round trip, what was it, about 8% below the start of the pandemic, which assumes that nothing has changed in the last two years, that we haven't seen this incredible transformation, which just tells you that we don't know where valuations are going to settle, that perhaps these were overpriced before the pandemic. And that really is not a lot for investors to go on if they're trying to find a bottom. Or maybe that they were correctly priced before the pandemic in a way, or maybe just a little rich, right? If we're going back to that level, it's always interesting to me, where do we assume yeah. these stocks are kind of fairly valued or correctly priced? Um, you know, just because it's down from where it was doesn't mean it wasn't awfully ambitious there. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at something like Rivian, uh, which we're, which we're going to talk about, I'm yeah. sure. I mean, what were you supposed to do with that? <laughs> yeah, I mean... We're, let's go there right now. We're going to stay with the theme of stocks that aren't working. So uh, John mentioned Rivian, shares of that company uh, falling as the company says that supply chain issues uh, are going to keep a cap on production. Our Phil Abou has more on the quarter. Phil, break this one down for us. Not exactly that same pandemic story, but again, um, more than a round trip from the IPO price. Yeah, it, it's below 50% of what the IPO initial price was. It started at 78. Where are they at now? 38. Um, and it's all about the production. And it's all about the guidance for 2022. And Colin Langan was on just a few minutes ago talking about how they're expecting a wider than expected loss. Look, they're only going to be making 25 thousand vehicles this year. That's their guidance. Most were expecting 37 or 40,000 and their capacity is for 50,000 vehicles. The reason the supply chain, they are just being hit in a number of areas. It's not across the board, but it's in some key areas. Those are the semiconductors, wiring harnesses and electronics. And it's going to take some time for them to slowly ramp up production. How are they dealing with their supply chain woes? Here's CEO R.J. Scaringe from the conference call last night. We're doing that in close partnership with the semiconductor suppliers where, as we source these, we're basically making sure uh, that this doesn't happen again. You know, so there's the, the way we're you know, setting up the contracts, the way we're negotiating pricing, the way we're negotiating the purchase process. Um, we're ensuring that the things that we previously treated as, as more of a commodity we now treat as a strategic sourcing agreement. And the area where they expect to be squeezed the most in terms of the shortage for semiconductors will be in the back half of this year. So that's why they brought down their guidance in terms of reservations. Remember, they had the whole pricing issue, the snafu, whatever you want to call it, from last week where they raised prices 17 to 20 percent uh, for those who have already placed an order. And then those people who canceled they ultimately said, OK, well, we're going to walk it back. We'll go with the original price. About half of those people, John, who had canceled orders when the price went up, ultimately reinstated their order. But keep in mind, that price increase, that goes through for all future orders. So they do need to raise prices because of what they're seeing with uh, the commodity costs that are out there and continue to soar. So I guess half did. That's good. But half didn't. <laughs> That's not so good. I, yeah. I wonder about that comment on uh, treating things that they have been treating as commodities, as strategic sourcing agreements, given that they're not at volume yet, how much leverage do they really have to do that? Also, they don't have the brand name of a Tesla. They don't have uh, Elon Musk, you know, sort of bully pulpit to, to be able to do perhaps what Tesla was able to do with suppliers so successfully over the last couple of years. Uh, sh should investors take what Rivian's saying about um, components at face value that, that they're changing everything and it's better from here on out? 
Well, I think you have to take it at face value, John. The other thing you have to keep in mind is who's one of the key owners of Rivian? Amazon. And when Amazon is, is on board, that's a, uh, a big stick in your corner when you're dealing with future contracts. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, they, they bring Amazon to the table when they're negotiating. Uh, but this is not just another startup that does not have big commitments and big reservations. Uh, they've got some substantial ones. The issue right now is production and ramping up that production. And so if they can, if they can yeah. get through this next year, year and a half, however long it takes, then you're looking at a company that potentially, potentially could be uh, a, quite a player when it comes to electric vehicles. But we're a long ways from there right now. Yeah, and Phil, I have questions about getting through the next year, year and a half. Rivian raised $12 billion in its IPO, right? That's a lot of money, but yep. they're going to need more, right? I mean, uh, Tesla raised, what, $20 billion in a year. The thought was that they could use potentially a surging stock price, investor enthusiasm to raise more capital in the markets. But the lower the stock sinks, the more difficult that is. Where are they going to get more capital? How much do they need for that second factory what? to ramp up manufacturing? Well, that's already, they've got the commitment for that. And I think they said $18.4 billion in terms of cash on hand. I'd have to go back and double check that. They're okay, liquidity-wise, for the time being. Uh, they expect to lose $4.75 billion this year. There's not a need for capital immediately. They've got the commitments in place, uh, and they've got the funding in place for that plant in Georgia. You take that plant, you take the plant in central Illinois, you put them together, uh, and I think you've got about 350,000, 400,000 unit capacity. Uh, that's going to tide them over at least through 25 and then going into 26. And then let's see where the market is. Let's see yeah. uh, how much demand is out there for Rivian EVs, for EVs overall. Um, but they're okay uh, in terms of having enough capital at this point. Okay, thanks for breaking that down. And yes, a lot can happen in a few years, as we know, Phil. We also want to get sure. to the Chinese sell-off in sell-off in Chinese tech, excuse me, fears of delistings from U.S. exchanges. Just the latest headline that is worrying investors. Our new Eunice Yoon joins us live from Beijing. Hey, Eunice. Hey, Deidre. Well, the selling pressure, in, especially in dual-listed tech names, uh, really got ugly today. But sentiment in Hong Kong and in China turned hopeful after Tsai Lian, a, a local news service that's associated with the state-backed Securities Times, reported that discussions between the U.S. and Chinese regulators on the audits of U.S.-listed Chinese firms were moving relatively smoothly, it said, and a consensus would be reached soon. Now, the SEC had earlier named five U.S.-listed ADRs of Chinese companies that could potentially be delisted if those companies didn't provide enough information and access to the audit documents. Uh, those five companies have all issued statements with varying degrees of commitment uh, to staying in the United States. Uh, Beijing said it looks forward to maintaining trading on the NASDAQ. ACM said it's committed to meeting the SEC's requirements. Xilab said it would find an accounting firm that satisfies the audit. Hutchmet said it's going to evaluate all its strategic options. And then Young China, which owns KFC here, said it may have to delist from the NYSC in early 2024. Now, the SEC said in December that it had identified 273 companies that were at risk. It hadn't disclosed any names. The U.S. wants full access to the books of Chinese companies and has wanted that for a long time. China, though, pushing back uh, for many, many years because it doesn't want to have foreign inspections by local accounting firms. Now, even so, 
China's securities regulator said on its social media account today that it's made, quote, positive progress with the SEC. The sentiment towards tech, though, still quite fragile, especially after DD Global uh, said or that there were reports, I should say, that DD Global has plans to shelve its Hong Kong IPO because it's apparently fallen short of China's cybersecurity review. Uh, that cybersecurity review, the results of it are supposed to be coming out in the next uh, mm-hmm. several weeks. Uh, but uh, for now, uh, D- the app uh, for mm-hmm. DD is still not going to be available here. And this is after it was take- removed from uh, local app stores last year. Yeah, Eunice, I mean, you take what's arguably the most well-known name over here in the U.S., Alibaba, and take a look at what's happened. It used to be worth $850 billion in market cap, now less than $250 billion. Some over the last few months have tried to call a bottom here. You had Charlie Munger saying that some of these names were starting to look like a bargain. You had, I think it was a Macquarie note saying that it was peak crackdown. But here's the problem with Chinese stocks, Eunice. Even if you're trying to call a bottom based on what you know on the ground in Beijing, then you don't know what D.C. is going to do, which is the reason for this latest sell-off. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of uh, concern about um, how these Chinese companies will be able to fare because it looks as though they're getting punched by two sides. Um, On the one hand, like you said, um, out here, a lot of people think that it's a big black box uh, when it comes to Chinese companies. There's not a whole lot of transparency. Also, there's a lot of pressure because of the regulatory uh, crackdowns on these tech companies. You mentioned Alibaba. There's a lot of question marks about um, exactly how this uh, the Xi Jinping administration is going to continue to pressure uh, the Jack Ma empire, including with Ant Group. So you have a lot of variables and questions over there. And then on the other side, uh, you know, Washington now it looks as though it has its eyes set on a lot of these Chinese companies and wants to make sure from their perspective that the accounting is 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 fair. But from the Chinese perspective, they feel that a lot of this is going to infringe on their national security. And that's going to be um, problematic and potentially lead to more conflicts down the road. Yeah, makes makes stocks hard to value. That's for sure. Eunice, thank you. Eunice, you. Still to come, our next guest says things still look tough in one already beaten down part of the market. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check. Deutsche Bank initiating coverage across big tech this morning. Bullish on Meta, Alphabet, Snap, Amazon as well, ready to buy with a $4,100 price target. What, what, 
they like what they see in post-COVID revenue growth and uh, grocery share gains. But on the flip side, they're rating names like Lyft and Etsy a hold. Twitter as well. More bearish there with a target of 35 bucks. Shares there lower D to start the morning. Meanwhile, John, WeWork is reporting fourth quarter results to cap off what has been a very rough year. Losses, they widened to $4.4 billion, net losses, that is, while revenue fell 25% in 2021. In terms of occupancy, and this is a key number for the company, that also fell short of the 70% the company told investors it expected when it went public via SPAC. And that's the level at which WeWork said that it would break even in terms of adjusted EBITDA. But in Q4, that measure, adjusted EBITDA, was negative $283 million dollars. We work as more optimistic on the year ahead, saying it expects 2022 revenue to jump at least 30 percent amid demand from companies switching to a hybrid work model. Shares have fallen more than 50 percent from its SPAC merger last October. Uh, John, WeWork is now what, about a three and a half billion dollar market cap company. We're still talking about it because it's still kind of a household name, but how far it's fallen. And it raises this question, too. Now that people are going back to the office, WeWork is saying that it's going to capitalize on a hybrid work Force, but how many companies actually got rid of their headquarters, headquarters or corporate offices? Uh, it seems like quite a quite a few. Are we still talking about it though? I mean, it's been a while since we talked about it. Let's see how. Maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about it more and more. But yeah, WeWork has got to be hoping for a lot more Goldman Sachs, and, right? <laughs> these days, uh, and, and and fewer uh, of the companies that are letting people stay home. And uh, you got to keep an eye on Adam Newman still, John, because there was this provision that he could actually return to the WeWork board, I think as early as this month, if sort of the board agreed to it. Now with Marcelo Clare gone from SoftBank, SoftBank sort of handing it off to the new CEO, that could be interesting to watch. (laughs) We'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Yes. Now let's turn to stocks within the direct-to-consumer landscape been a tough trade. Uh, Stocks like Warby Parker, Allbirds, Stitch Fix have all lost more than half their value year to date. Next guest found that nearly all public D2C companies with market caps of more than 800 million are struggling with revenue contraction, shrinking margins, runaway losses, or all of the above. And joining us now, big technology newsletter author and CNBC contributor, Alex Kantrowitz. Alex, uh, welcome. D2C Uh, to me was interesting uh, initially because they built these tools and processes for cutting marketing spend, uh, for cutting outside platform spend, and and sort of having this direct relationship with the customer. But now through Shopify and others, there's so many tools out there for so many different types of companies to do that. I wonder how they differentiate now. It's going to be really difficult. And despite all the spin they might have given us about being different or building these relationships with consumers, um, they still need those social media ads in order to reach people. I mean, Warby Parker went public just a few months ago, said 13 percent brand awareness. I mean, 87 percent of people don't know what Warby Parker is. So how are they going to have special marketing using, you know, any sort of platform they want without using ad spend in order to reach people? And unfortunately for the D2C companies, ad spend is way up. Way up. I mean, you look at Facebook ad prices. I had one ad buyer tell me they used to be $6 to reach 1,000 people. Now it's tripled to around 18. I mean, it's really difficult to do business in that environment. Yeah, and so that was a key part of the mechanism that they were using to acquire customers relatively cheaper. And then the idea was that they'd be able to retain them. Bricks and mortar was another piece of that. But I guess that perhaps gets more complicated in a higher 
interest rate environment. At least some players in tech seem to be stepping back uh, from, from using that model somewhat. I mean, uh, you know, Amazon comes to mind and at least shifting its brick and mortar ambitions. Yeah, again, so Warby Parker had been talking to us for a long time about its brick and mortar strategy, but to have only 13% unaided brand awareness, even still, I mean, it doesn't help. And you have to really expand in a big way in order to do that. And look at the losses that these companies have. When you have a company like Warby Parker, and there was some stock compensation involved, but it lost 91 million in the third quarter of 2021. Um, then you look at Wayfair, for instance. Wayfair lost 78 million with contracting revenue. So, you know, they might be telling us, all right, we want to do brick and mortar. It's going to be difficult for them to differentiate themselves anyway if they do that. Uh, and they're still stuck with, again, increasing ad spend, really difficult measurement on these social media platforms because Apple has cut off their ability to track off of the platform, off of Facebook. And then shipping costs is another really important thing to discuss, where they used to be able to import a container from China for $2,000. Now that costs $15,000, $20,000. So you have these skyrocketing costs. The revenue is um, you know, more difficult to come by, and it's really a, a pinch for them. That's why margins are contracting, and you're seeing the stocks take a hit, and it might not be over. Hmm. Alex, you know, Shopify was supposed to be this sort of knight in shining armor for a lot of these D2C companies. And yes, certainly they have certainly helped the industry sort of flourish and reach customers. Um, what do you think the role is going forward, especially you talk about increasing shipping costs and now Shopify is moving further into the logistics space. Could that be sort of an upcoming bright spot for these companies? Yeah, if Shopify is able to decrease the price of a container from $20,000 to $2,000 to bring it in from China for these companies, then, you know, that's great. But I just don't think that Shopify, Shopify has the capacity to do that. And you look at these companies, you know, Shopify essentially is the skin for them to build a store. So they're able to build that store online. The number one question now is how do you reach customers? And yeah. if you're doing it primarily via advertising, you could have the best Shopify experience of your life. You're still not going to be able to make a big difference using that platform or any other platform. Yeah, Alex, that's a good point. And that anecdote you got from that social media ad buyer on Facebook is really interesting. But are these companies you know, moving at a good pace over to, call it maybe more relevant platforms mm -hmm. like TikTok? What does the sort of ad dollars look like there? Yeah, so I'm going to be covering this a lot more, but I will say right away that there is a big movement to TikTok. Everyone's talking about TikTok, but there's a problem with TikTok because with Facebook, what they were doing was they were putting these ads on and it was like a nice picture and some text and people would click like crazy on it because it made sense in the context of the newsfeed. I have the same people trying to create content for Facebook move over to TikTok. Anyone who's used TikTok knows it's a completely different culture, a completely different environment there. And you have to ramp up in order to be able to speak that language. And I think it's going to be slow. So in the meantime, I think we're going to see a lot more red ink on the balance sheets of these companies who've lost the major lifeline, which is cheap advertising on social media to reach new customers. So Alex, do you have a take yet on who power accrues to in the situation then with Facebook uh, not doing what it was? Is it the likes of, uh, you know, an Amazon that has a third-party retailer marketplace and people sort of know how you have to try to, to game the system there to get yourself to the top of the rankings? Or does it go back to more traditional settings, uh, aggregators, I'm not saying like department stores, but the modern version of department stores, older school brand advertising? W what happens? I think Amazon has already started to take advantage of this. They made $31 billion in advertising 
last year. That's a tremendous amount of money. First time they've ever disclosed that number. And from the D2C advertisers that I speak with, a lot of them are like, we never wanted to go through a middleman, but now we're going to go through Amazon. We don't have a big choice. Here's a dark horse. I think Apple is just getting started building its ad platform. And I don't think it's taking these moves against Facebook um, you know, by accident. I think that as opposed to what we hear, oh, this is a privacy thing. I think what Apple is really doing is setting itself up to build an app platform that swoops in and takes that market share away from Facebook. So it's very strange because Apple has caused all this pain for the D2C advertisers in the short term. But they are praying right now that Apple sets up an ad platform with the same tracking that enables them to build their businesses back on cheap advertising. So I would say Apple is the dark horse to take a look at in terms of where power goes. Huh? Maybe they can figure out a way to do it with differential privacy and have it both ways. And if it's Apple, they'll be making some money, you can be sure. Alex, thank you. Thank you. After the break, inflation's impact on fintech. We're going to talk names like PayPal, Affirm, Block, and more. We're back in just a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deidre Bosa. The market has remained volatile this week. A 3.5% loss on the NASDAQ Monday came before a 3.5% rally on Wednesday. This morning, the NASDAQ down about a percent. The VIX at, uh, let's see, just under 30. We're going to dive in to fintech, spend some time there in about a minute. Uh, Many names, they are down sharply. But despite the massive selling in some parts of tech to start 2022, take a look at the XLK since the pandemic began two years ago. Still up nearly 70 percent. More on that after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Happy Friday, Rahel. Happy Friday, John. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Consumer sentiment has fallen more than expected this month. The University of Michigan's index dropping below 60 as gasoline prices hit record highs. One year inflation expectations jumped to 5.4 percent, the highest since 1981. Oil prices are rebounding after two days of heavy losses. West Texas Intermediate is up about 2 percent. But crude is still on track for its biggest weekly drop since November. This says traders look at ways that disruptions of Russian oil supplies can be offset in a tight market. And publishing giant Pearson has rejected an $8.5 billion takeover offer from Apollo Global Management. Pearson says that the offer undervalues the global education group. Pearson shares are up about 18%. Apollo is up about 3% in a mixed market, as you pointed out, John. 
Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Turning now to fintech, VC funding in the space plunging to start March. That's according to an analysis by Crunchbase. So how much of the slowdown can we attribute to inflation and rate hike fears? Joining us now, Founders Fund general partner, Keith Verboy. Keith, good morning. It's great to have you with us again. Uh, it's interesting. While traditional fintech funding has cooled, crypto funds have absolutely exploded. You have Sequoia as well as Bank Capital announcing funds worth half a billion dollars just over the last few months. Do you think fintech dollars are moving into crypto and Web3? Well, definitely crypto is one of the few hot areas left in private investing. Eventually, though, people are going to have to reconcile the private market valuations of crypto companies with Coinbase's multiples. Like, you can't defy reality forever. But right now, because of dedicated crypto funds, these people have nothing to do except spend the money on a certain subset of investments. And that's leading to artificial price distortion. You said that, Keith, with some, uh, I don't know, is it disdain in your voice? You said they've nothing left to do but sort of increase the valuations of these companies. Uh, What is Founders Fund's position? Notably, you guys don't have a dedicated crypto fund. Yeah, we're generalist investors. We like to find the best founders on the planet with the most ambitious plans, and we'll fund them regardless of what they're aiming for. And so we funded uh, crypto companies successfully. We bought Bitcoin directly over the last eight years very successfully. And we're looking for new innovative opportunities that leverage crypto like Royal reinventing music. But we're not looking for crypto crypto. We're looking for world-class founders, what we call end of one founders, the one person on the planet who can pull off a rearrangement of of an industry. So so is the sector overhyped then, Keith? What do you think happens to all of these investments that are being made and these funds, especially from Bank Capital, private equity firm, getting into this? Well, it's not overfunded per se. It's just that there's going to be one or two or three companies that are iconic and important. And the key is for an investor is, are you on the cap table? Are you a material investor in those companies? Having an index doesn't really help you. Keith, uh, we were just talking about the D2C landscape and how uh, a lot of the companies that have gone public in that space, you know, investors are reconsidering what they're really worth, and I'm reconsidering what their strategic advantage is. You've been doing a lot of thinking about this space and sort of how to uh, aggregate uh, power and platform benefit among these brands. What's your thought now on what's important for them to do as the digital marketing landscape shifts under their feet a bit? Well, obviously, targeted advertising is more difficult, and that means the customer acquisition cost for people who are targeting a subset of Americans is going to be more expensive, perhaps prohibitively more expensive, especially as capital, the cost of capital increases because of inflation and implied interest rate changes. So fundamentally, people who want to build a new direct-to-consumer business need to find a low-cost way of acquiring customers, which if you're not a horizontal platform is extremely difficult and challenging and maybe impossible in the West in the short term. But, but you have some ideas on how they can do that, right? So talk about the strategic levers that are important for them right now. I mean, you, you see you know, tools the like of, of Stripe, et cetera, trying to aid the sorts of companies that are doing this, but differentiation seems harder than it was in the past. Well, Stripe and Shopify create tools that empower entrepreneurs to start a business, scale a business very naturally, very easily. But can you reach venture scale or public company scale is a very different question. And only a small fraction of companies that use these platforms, whether Shopify, whether Stripe or equivalents, um, are not going to be successful independent public companies. That hasn't changed over the last 40 or 50 years. So they do empower people to create cash flow businesses, which can be very successful. It depends on the goals and aims of the company, its founders and its investors. 
But for venture capitalists, we need breakthrough hits that are worth $10 billion or more. And that's going to be very rare, regardless of what platform choices you choose. Keith, I wonder if I could get your thoughts on what we've been seeing in public and now starting to see in private tech markets as a whole. Um, it's hard to say where it's going to bottom out, but there was an FT article this week that asked whether it's time to stop calling this a tech wreck and perhaps start calling it a fully-fledged dot-com crash 2.0. What do you think? Well, I've been calling it a fully-fledged dot-com crash uh, for all, all of 2020. One, actually, this was very obvious to me starting last year that we were going to have a correction that was equal and equivalent to 2000. And I think we're at least at March of 2000. I don't know if we hit June 2000 yet. So in March 2000, the market crashed, but a lot of people sort of tried to dismiss it and didn't really adjust all the behaviors. It was in June 2000 when the market crashed again that everybody realized we were in a new world order. And so I think we're somewhere in between uh, the March and the June timeframe in terms of people's mentality. I, I do see some sea changes, and, and there's less people trying to resist the fact that tech stocks are just worth a different amount. Valuations are a function of interest rates. And maybe 50, 60, 70% of the valuation of a company has been inflated by a very low to negligible interest rates, and that is not a sustainable future. Well, but Keith, this feels to me entirely different from the, the dot-com bust in the sense that uh, people's morale in the dot-com bust, a lot of people just got completely wiped out. And there was this idea that all of the ideas that were driving the market higher during that time, you just had to totally toss out. There were people saying, oh, well, the, the internet software is not as big a deal as we thought. There doesn't seem to be that kind of capitulation on a number of things, including things like crypto and uh, uh, you know, NFTs as a part of that, the metaverse that have been a part of this recent leg higher. So in that sense, the disillusionment, it seems to me, doesn't seem to be a part of this uh, so it doesn't feel like the same kind of wreck. Does it feel different to you? For now, I mean, like, look, there's going to be layoffs and cuts and, you know, companies are going to fail at rates we haven't seen in three to four years. And that will cause some pockets of disillusionment. disillusionment. Yes, there are many real fundamentally sound companies and software is eating the world and technology is the future. Math and science are the future of American society and hopefully of the planet. However, this was also somewhat true in 1999 and 2000. There's the, this is sort of like the fake news version of the internet bubble is many of these companies were foundationally quite important. Think of Amazon, Google, et cetera, PayPal, Netflix, were all built in the internet quote unquote bubble. These, these were the future of the planet for the next 20 years. So I think the same thing's gonna be true. It's just that there is a different uh, price of capital. Like the cost of oxygen is just fundamentally different. So if people need a lot of capital to build something, it's gonna be, perhaps creatively expensive, and, or if not, people are going to have to be more disciplined and thoughtful about how do they scale. Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Hope to talk to you again soon. Keith, we're Pleasure. Yeah. Guess winter is coming, uh, even though spring should be coming. A programming note. Starting Monday, we have a new lineup in the afternoon here on CNBC. Sarah Eisen will anchor Closing Bell at 3 p.m. And at 4 p.m., tune in for the premiere of Closing Bell Overtime. Scott Wapner will get actionable ideas from big investors and bring you all the market-moving news after hours. That starts Monday. We're back after this. Welcome back. Gut check on Oracle. Stock in the red earlier this morning, now up 2%. The company meeting expectations on revenue, posting a miss on earnings. 
Oracle reporting its profit has taken a hit from two investments, gene sequencing company uh, Oxford Nanopore and ARM server chip maker Ampere Computing. Also, are we back in 2020? Oracle is yet again near a deal with TikTok to store U.S. users' information, bypassing access from Chinese parent company ByteDance. Its original deal, pushed by former President Trump, was shelved after the Biden administration dropped an executive order threatening to ban TikTok. D. After the break, the CEO of Marketa, another recent IPO down big. Stay with us. The Dow is up, though. Tech is underperforming again. Check out shares of DocuSign, down 20% plus. Worst performer on the NASDAQ. Over at the S&P, it's Etsy, down 9 plus. Tesla, Micron, Adobe, Meta, also sharply lower. Stay with us. We are back in two. Welcome back. Fintech company Marketa beating revenue expectations this quarter, delivering an upbeat outlook for 2022, despite the broader sector taking a beating. CEO Jason Gardner joins us now. Uh, Jason, welcome. So, um, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, special branded cards and then also uh, the way that we see this entire landscape and get into the consumer changing. I'm wondering kind of what you're seeing happening with buy now, pay later, not just as a means of replacing credit, but also of aggregating uh, attention and providing a, a new consumer experience and, and how you see that affecting your business. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for your continued interest in, in Marketa. So as well as we saw, we saw a sequential growth from Q3 to Q4 50%. Buy now, pay later a few years ago was not part of the consumer choice. Now we see even uh, a study that we did, we, we surveyed 3,500 consumers in the U.S., Australia, and the U.K., and 51% of them have actually used buy now, pay later. So we just see this changing landscape where consumers are looking at other types or other modalities to, to pay. And, and I, we believe it's here to stay. And that's very clear based on the growth we saw in the fourth quarter. But it doesn't seem, Jason, to be just about paying. It seems to be about relationship and engagement between brands and consumers, right? And in this time where we've seen uh, the, we want to call it traditional, as if Facebook has been around forever, the more traditional ways of maintaining digital engagement or targeting are breaking down. What do you see as the most important things that you and your customers are providing that, that's sort of laying the groundwork for what comes next? Well, our customers like Affirm, Klarna, Afterpay, Zip, Sezzle, and the Buy Now, Pay Later space come to us to use virtual cards, which inserts a virtual card in the checkout flow. So it looks like you're paying with Affirm, but there's a card that flows through the, the, uh, the checkout flow from an acquiring perspective. This is what we do every day, which is pay through uh, different, uh, whether online or offline, using using card products. So, what it does is just streamlines and brings more choice to the consumer. It allows the buy now pay later companies to get into more and more merchants, both offline and online, and then bring that consumer choice. And again, we've seen just through the last two years of growth in buy now pay later has been pretty extraordinary. And we see how this payment type is really here to stay. And it's obviously. Uh, uh, a big vertical for Marketa based on the uh, the results of, of Q4. Jason, it's fascinating to look at your sort of customer mix. Marketa's popularity kind of began with the disruptors, companies like Square, now Block, DoorDash, others in the gig economy space. But you're increasingly doing business with traditional banks. I wonder what is the makeup now and where do you think the greatest opportunity lies? 
Well, it's been part of our strategy. So we started off with commerce disruptors where we saw the DNA match with developers. Companies you mentioned like, like DoorDash, there's Instacart, Block. We then went into digital banks, uh, tech giants, and large financial institutions. That's where actually a majority of the volume exists today around the world. And, and we've always thought about how do we break into that space? Now, we are in the picks and shovels business. We've seen, obviously, lots of disruptors built on top of our platform. And now we're seeing the large financial institutions really want to uh, compete. So JP Morgan Chase, uh, then uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, and, and now Citi. Uh, we're launching in 40 mar markets using Marketa's tokenization uh, as a service, which is a first uh, for, for the industry. And it really just allows consumers to instantly issue a card into Apple Pay, Google Pay, or Samsung Pay. Now we've seen now that we're coming out of the pandemic, mm. the ability to use these types of services like, like Apple Pay is really here to stay. And, and obviously Citi wants to use Marketa's technology to take advantage of that. So more we'd love to get into with you on the space. We'll have to have you back. Jason Gardner, CEO of Marketa, thank you. Thank you for having me. And if you missed part of the show, make sure you download the Tech Check podcast. We are back in just a minute. One more thing, and that is companies continue to tweak their policies in Ukraine and Russia against the backdrop of cultural and political outcry, leading to some strange headlines like this. According to Reuters, Meta will allow Facebook and Instagram users in certain countries to call for violence against invading Russian soldiers or death to President, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin or Belarusian President uh, Alexander Lukashenko. A Meta spokesperson saying the company has, quote, temporarily made allowances for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules uh, like violent speech. Meta will still take action if those calls are credible rather than general or involve other people, but still a striking statement and shows how difficult it has been for social media platforms and for tech to strike the right path here. Uh, D, strange times, um, but, you know, understandable that they pivot. Yeah, I mean, so much of what we've seen from all the social media networks has still been reactive, um, as always seems the case. But that either highlights, um, you know, how hard it's been for them to actually create policies to account for unpredictable, volatile events. Um, one thing is for sure, though, John, I would not want to be on Facebook's oversight board. These issues are going to keep coming up. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.